You're tuned in to the Bruh's Bookshelf Podcast, where we read the books and let the content drive the discussion. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to another Bruh's Bookshelf podcast episode. This week, we're continuing with part three of Toronto Burke and Brene Brown's You Are Your Best Thing. I'm your host, Lennon Givens, joined with my line brother, Donovan Snipe, my lovely wife, Dr. Teresa Givens, and Dr. Harvey Hinton III. And Harvey is going to be introducing our special guest. Take it away, Harvey. Yeah, dog. Um, happy tonight to have uh, my cousin Shantia Carter on on with us tonight. And the reason being, um, Shantia is a therapist. Okay, and she she's out here doing the work of helping people find their peace. And um, like us, she comes from HBCU Johnson C Smith down here in uh, North Carolina. She was Miss Johnson C Smith in 1996. So uh, it's pretty cool to have a a former a Miss uh, Campus Queen on the microphone. She's also um, a Sora. She's a Delta, uh, Fall 95. So uh, we're happy to have Shantia on the mic tonight to help us talk about the notion of um, what it means to heal from a practitioner's perspective as well. Teresa's a practitioner too, so we're going to have a, a double dose of practitioner and personal reflection on this uh, topic uh, tonight of about healing and grief in the black community. So we're happy to have Santia join us tonight. Happy to be here. Happy to balance out some of the testosterone um, that I listened to from the last Thank podcast. I want to back my sister up. So I'm here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hi, Teresa, you saying, why, why am I here? Uh, yes, yes. I want to do a drinking game off of that. That was really good. <laughs> I, I didn't know anyone heard my cry. I did. I'm here. You sent out an SOS. Your beacon has been answered. I'm here. <laughs> Welcome. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm always happy to do anything with um, Dr. Harvey Hinton and uh, the third and his exploits. Um, uh, he's doing great things in the community and happy to be here with the bros and, 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 and Teresa. I'm going to call you Doc, too. That's right. Absolutely. Teresa, introduce the first essay. Well, Feeling Every Page with Joy, Rewriting Trauma and Shame by Kaya Nadira. She starts this essay off by saying, I could do all things through spite, which strengthened me. She she does what a lot of people who, who have uh, experienced trauma uh, do, which is kind of just lash out. Like when all you have is like a numbness and um, I guess distrust left over. Um, the only thing that kind of motivates and excites you is kind of just being spiteful and catty. But it was nice to see, I guess, her transformation that she found through stripping because it allowed her to actually kind of just own herself and have agency, which a lot of people would find counterproductive or counterintuitive because strippers are, are thought of as people that we just objectify and just you are our, our fantasy. But I mean, in that you kind of, I don't know, guide the fantasy. So 
I don't know. Her story's okay. I, I have a question. What's up? What was her trauma other than her being binary, queer, not having a father, worried about what her mother was going to think? And just how regular, her regular old black shit, huh? That's what you're trying to say now. I mean, like, what was her trauma? <laughs> just regular old black shit. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, she said she was assaulted by her close friend, but what does that mean? You know, bipolar people sometimes make up stuff in their head. I mean, I don't know. It was a it was a well written uh, essay. It, it, it was it was good to listen to. It was good to read, but I couldn't say really, that again, dog. It was a well-written essay. No, 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 no. Say the other thing. You say what you said again. Uh, no, <laughs> because I still have to live with him. Let's not do that again. Um, I, I think we got to be careful because perception does shape reality. So where we are experiencing life, that's the way that we're experiencing it. So if she's saying that, you know, she felt victimized in that, in, in what, in one, all of those things, and those were heavy for her to carry. A glass of water can be heavy if you hold it all day long with your arm out to your side, and you know, so it, it, you know, it's. But, but what was it that was so I, heavy? I, she didn't really say. She didn't go into detail about the assault. She mentions that she was assaulted, and she actually says she was assaulted twice. So, but um, I, I think that's the point. Though. I think. I think. I. I think it is regular old black shit. I don't think it has to be anything no more. I, I think your question is valid, but I don't think it, it, at this point, it may not have to be anything particular anymore. Well, we can't dismiss that a sexual assault or even a physical assault is nothing, though. And She didn't specify, was it sexual? She just said assault. She said somebody being no, 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 no. down. Does she have to, though? Like, why do we have to know what the thing was in order to believe that she had a trauma? I think that we can separate a lot of this because the bipolar diagnosis doesn't play as much into this story as we seem to be discussing at this point. You know, I want to first look at the fact that this is a personal essay, which means that everything about it is not going to apply to everyone. So this is her personal essay about her experiences which means she is telling us the story of her experience. So we have to take her experience for what her experience is. Um, We brought up her motto, I can do all things through spite, which strengthens me. And that seems to have been a coping mechanism for her. And I, you know, for me, I know that it can, if used in a positive way, be used as a positive motivation. You can take the fact that people don't believe in you and say, because of that, I will make something of myself. Even if the motivation isn't as pure as it should be, but you go out and you make something of yourself just so you can say, hey, look, look what I did. And you spit on me, or you said I was ugly. We see it or hear it in music. People say, "Um, Cardi B said it, then Biggie Small said it. You know, this is what Ugly. y'all called me. Yes, that's what y'all called me. But look at me now. Ugly. So that can be um, a motivation. And I really don't think that it has anything to do with her diagnosis. I think that's just her personal experience. I concur. Um, the, 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 the part that I highlighted based on that uh, is, is, is a little bit down in that same paragraph where I can do all things through spite, which strengthens me. She says, I was living in a world that was constantly taken from me. 
my bodily autonomy, my agency, my joy taken from me. So I clung to spite. I clung to my anger and I gave it credit for every aspect of my success. I became obsessed with and comfortable with my bitterness because I somehow thought the reward would be joy. And there's the part that's the rub because you can use your spite to fuel you. You can do the right, righteous indignation part of that. But then you got to do your shadow work. Then you got to go back and deal with the bitterness. Because you can compartmentalize while you're working on your success. But it will do no good to you to be a public success and a private failure because you still have that hurt and that rage bubbling up inside. So, so and this is what I see what happens when, when you don't do that. And where, where she, where her, if she had a shortcoming, if it were to, not that I want to, you know, dismiss her or add a layer to her critique, but she felt like when she was stripping, you know, she had control of a man's pockets. She got a thrill out of that. And she also liked to watch what happened to Buddy who pulled his thing out. You know, she liked watching the stripper, the, the bouncer beat the dude up. You know, she, she liked got, that because she, she got felt a thrill like she out of that. Somebody spoke up for but her. But that's my point, right? But but yeah, like for the first time. That but that was a display of violence. That was Other her rage being acted out. Right, her. right, right, right. Exactly. You see, you understand what I'm saying? That was that was her that was violence. Her mama had done looked out for her. Other people in her family had spoken up for her, but that wasn't good enough. She had to see a motherfucker get jacked up for her to get it. So you know, that's what happens when that cleansing doesn't fully take place. Sometimes it takes acts of violence to match your feelings. You know, sometimes talking don't do it. That's not that's not gonna match your feeling. That's not gonna match your hurt. You know, violence sometimes matches your hurt. You feel a sense of comfort when there's violence inflicted on somebody that done something to you, because that is the same amount of hurt that you that you experienced. But is that normal? I I, I don't know. I mean, I, it is normal as you make it, I guess. Or I, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if it's normal, but sometimes it feels good. Mm hmm. I had somebody beat up for me when I was a kid for stealing my bicycle and it felt good. Every blow that they received on my behalf, I felt like I was protected and I felt like they was getting the, I felt like it was justice being served. Hmm. And there's a sense of power in that. I mean, and nobody likes feeling powerless. So if power has to be expressed through violence, if that's the only way you can express power, then that's, just somehow it comes how it comes out. It just be a slippery slope, man. Like, you know, I, I get the idea of physical frustration and beating on things, but people cut themselves too, you know? And the thrill of cutting themselves, their way of feeling seeking pleasure and feeling something. So it you know, it, it all becomes nasty, I think, you know, when we don't give it the proper space and recognize that that it may not matter what happened to the person. What may matter is what is this person trying to express that the world isn't or they're feeling as though the world isn't letting them let out. That seemed to be the issue. If you ask me, like it was this whole thing about her wanting to let something out that she couldn't. And that's where the stripping became liberating because she could let it out. She didn't give a damn about men liking her she wanted that paper but and she could let out something by, by stripping 
So I think that becomes the, the, the frustrating part when there's something inside of you that you can't let out. And in that process of you not being let it out, people are placing other forms on you of how to be. And so then you just come on this reckless ass road of trying to defy people, you know. So I think that's where it gets tricky, you know. And she actually said that. She said that, you know, I was asking myself, what did I have if I didn't have this hate? But then she said I should have been asking myself, what did I want? Without this anger aside from me, what did I and want? We don't know that. And that's the thing. We, we we lack the imagination to know sometimes what we want. All we know is we want to see that motherfucker fucked up. Fuck that. Fuck him up, man. <laughs> <What's it? laughs> hey, that's all we- <laughs> no. Harvey, I have a question for you. All right. Um, in the last podcast, you said you pee outside. You a man's man. You a warrior, he did say that. right? <laughs> and you know, so <laughs> cisgender, masculine male, and I identify with you with that. Let me ask you something. Reading these uh, essays about these people, and a lot of these people are queer, and a lot of these people are like. We consider like the outcasts of society, the people that we shun, we we think that are different, right? And they and this book is giving them a platform to tell their stories. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Like their biggest opposition in their community is us as black men, straight black men. I hate to do this, but let's let me let me do this. You asked me the question, and let me do. I hate to do this, but let me, let's jump to Laverne Cox essay. Her point her point talked about the, the violence that had been inflicted upon black men and the emasculation of black men through white supremacy, and how the emasculation of black men through white supremacy plays itself out in in the black man's family and the violence he then brings home because of what he's experiencing in this in the in in the white supremacist space. And so because of that, I think to your point, I think um patriarchy, white, you know, male patriarchy as as men, patriarchy is is the power. I think we all identify with power. I think all human beings want to be powerful. And being that we're in a white male dominant society, our maleness aligns us with what we would perceive as normal sometimes. And I think we can internalize ways of um, John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and all these motherfuckers and not even realize it. Rambo, all this bullshit, um, you know, and, and not realize it sometimes. Right. And so when we're hearing these stories, it, it does it does present itself like, damn, I am the boogeyman. You know, I, I gotta, and so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't negate that. I don't, I don't negate that feeling one bit. You know what I'm saying? And it's, and it's tough to wrestle with. You know what I mean? Like, okay, how much of this is my fault? Like, what did I do? Like, damn, like you know, you know, and so, and that's where, you know, it becomes challenging. That's where, you know, for some of the reasons why, you know, we kind of wanted, for me at least, to kind of push against Mark Lamont Hill a little bit in his in his conversation around masculinity. Because it's like, you know, what do we supposed to have? You know, again, we lack the imagination to understand sometimes how we're supposed to be. So what's normal to us has been oppressive to someone else. And so when it gets presented to us, yeah, it, it feels that way. To wrap up this first essay, 
before we, before we move forward from this first essay, she walked around bearing a lot of stress on how her mother would perceive her when she came out and told her mother, like, look, mom, I'm queer and I'm non-binary. And her mother was so loving and accepting of her daughter that she didn't know how to take that. She was like, what? You know, she was she was foreboding her joy, you know, of her mother <laughs> accepting her. She was disarmed with that. It was foreign to her, like, wait a minute, so you ain't mad? Like, you ain't got no problem with this, mom? Her mama don't, her mama was like, so what's up? That's them, they, them? What is that? He, her, hers? Mm-hmm. She, her, she's? Yeah, girl, I've heard that before. Just, you want to eat? No, nah, but that was a that was a huge lift, though. The um, pain, the shame, the guilt of not meeting her parents and her aunt's approval, you know, um, and and having to find that from the outside. Does anybody on this podcast know, in layman's term, what is non-binary? I mean, we know what it means, but in layman's term, like. Not identifying. Describe somebody that's non-binary. Completely thwarting gender. Not conforming to the roles that it goes that goes with it. You like it's it's the ultimate. You're not going to tell me what I am. I'm going to tell you what I am. I'm going to tell you what to call me. It's that whole. And you really never know what they do, so you can't assume they're doing anything. You go with what they tell you. That's what you That's do. So on Monday, I can wear a dress. On Tuesday, I wear a suit. As a school, as a school yeah. therapist, a school-based therapist, my clients that were in middle school, and they they might change from week to week. They might change from day to day. And I would tell the teachers, and I would do, well, what is it that you want to, what is today? And we, we, we're going day by day. You use what they tell you. Oh, okay. So. Gender fluid, just, you know. I'm not going to like you. Like she said, I'm not going to be not going to really conform to be what you think a man should be or what a woman should be. So I think the issue becomes the cisgendered world. The rules of business says you play the game, and playing the game says you tuck it in, you cut this, you do this, you do that, and they don't care about all that other wild shit. That's what business says, and somewhere. We, I think, can attach cisgender, business, all this into the same cocktail of how things are supposed to be sometimes. And it becomes challenging for us to recognize and accept difference sometimes. But who said it's supposed to be? Which way we're going. got to go back to that's the power what I'm saying. structure. But that's the, I mean, that's, it's business, right? So that's the who, and it's, it's the money thing. That's corporate, but so and, that's capitalism, and so, so these that's people, colonialism. And, and, and so we're talking about now the influences, uh, you know, what communities are able to gain voice right now? It's kind of weird. So they use the teacher's restroom? Most schools have a, um, they, they had to, you know, that that's that whole Title IX stuff. So they had to make sure there was something in there to where there was a place for them to go. And there are rules about what they do. So there is a, there should be a non-gender by, uh, bathroom. But, you know, Dave Chappelle and some other comedians, I mean, we see, I, I think the issue is, Lenny, too, we see where sometimes this shit don't apply. Like, where does where does the bullshit stop? I guess that's the other part of it, right? Where does, <laughs> where, you know, when, you, when, when, you're, when you're of this, this cisgendered 
normative space and you're, again, trying so hard to fit and maneuver, you're constantly thinking, where does the bullshit stop? So to see somebody else come with some other shit that's confronting you, it's like, come on, man, some more bullshit. Man, we ain't got time well, for this, Well, we don't man. have to Put fit, that bullshit though. Away. We don't. But we don't. Cisgender we, doesn't have to fit. We already fit the normative. But the individual, the individual is not receiving, though. That's the thing. The individual experience is not reflective of the the norm. I think that's the issue with the whole thing. I think that's what even happens with white men. Like the average white male is just not that James Bond motherfucker, and he's supposed to be. And so to see all these black men run around circles on his ass. That's his frustration, if you ask me. I think it's all part of the same poison. How so? How so? Bring it back for me. Because again, like in the projected world, the white man is supposed to be God. And on the planet, LeBron James would dunk on your ass. Because it's flipped. On the planet, Hussein Bolt would outrun (laughs) you. On the planet, Neil deGrasse Tyson would outmap the solar You know, You understand what I'm saying? So in real life, everywhere he looked, it's a nigga doing some shit better than him. How does that apply to this queer space though? Like, It's the idea that Lenny was speaking to around, so once once now, when you're of the normative, so you say, right? But your, your normative experience is not winning. For someone else to come and tell you that, you know, their experience of, of whatever, whatever, sometimes it can make you feel a certain kind of way. I think that's that's how it connects. But I think that with these essays, I mean, it it continues to be a theme for some reason. I'm not real sure why this particular book seems to be full of experiences that have that theme in them. Um, Vulnerability, shame, resilience, and the Black experience. Um, it's just interesting that that theme seems to go throughout because, of course, that is not everyone's experience. But we have kind of made that more of a focal point than I feel like it should be. One of the reasons why is because I'm not real sure why it's so prevalent and prominent in these essays. But especially in this particular essay, it's not even a big part. Um, the, the largest part is maybe that is why she couldn't accept herself because she was afraid that her family was not going to accept her. But for the most part, it's about abuse. It's about acceptance. It's about self-worth because I don't really feel like she felt worthy to be treated well which is why she forgave her attacker. And it was sexual assault because she said that she had been sexually assaulted twice towards the end of her essay. So um, it's a lot of things to unpack in this essay. I did like the essay. I did relate in some respects because we all want acceptance from our mothers, our aunt. You know, my family is large. I want to have that acceptance from them. And it doesn't even have to be about sexuality. It could be about any choice that we make in our lives. But for sure, there was some self-worth stuff going on. And I feel like the bipolar and the queerness kind of convoluted this essay a little bit. But it could just be a theme for 
any young lady who was having shame about self-worth and had to reclaim her self-worth because her body had been violated by someone else. He talks about shifting by the end. So she did, you know, pivot. She did see that being powerless, feeling powerless, taking on the victim mentality um, was in many ways stunning her development, her inner development. And she began to uh, have more industry with that toward the end. That paralysis uh, that she felt during one of the sexual assaults, where she said she felt like she couldn't move and she was going to the sunken place, a place that she was familiar with. A lot of my clients who have had any sexual trauma in the past, that rang out to me because I always have to tell them that is part of your nervous system. It's not you letting do anybody do anything to you. Your brain is telling you to survive. And we all have a natural bend. You either a lizard, you a deer, or you a bear. Now, y'all fellas that's peeing outside, I'm guessing y'all are bears. But some of us may, you know, be lizards. We're going to run. We may be a deer. That's that deer in headlights. And that's what that paralysis is. That is a natural bend of everyone to have whatever reaction you're going to have in the situation. And it don't mean you let nobody do nothing to you. You just were so scared. You didn't know what to do. So she survived. And she is a survivor then, not a victim anymore. And I think she kind of owned that body. All right. A little psychoeducation. Sorry about that. No, that was really good. Hey guys, I've gotten fat. Why? Because I like to munch on unhealthy snacks. But all that is about to change. Thanks to Power Bites. Power Bites offers a nutritious and healthy alternative to junk foods without all the unhealthy ingredients. Power Bites come in two flavors. Almond peanut butter crunch and salt peanut butter crunch. Both of my favorites. More importantly, they are gluten free, soy free and dairy free. And they are good. Don't believe me? Try for yourself. Pick up a variety pack at eatpowerbites.com www.eatpowerbites.com and use the promo code HERTS15 that's H-E-A-R-S-T 15 oh I almost forgot to mention it's black on more of a reason to go to www.eatpowerbites.com eatpowerbites.com and order your variety pack. Enjoy. Back to the bros bookshelf. The next essay is Honoring Our Stories, Transforming Our Pain. Duran Young. The founder of Black Therapist Rock. To which I was a member. You work with her? I've never worked with Darren. Um, I've been at conferences where she was at. But I've not um, had the pleasure, the pleasure to work with her. She's very wonderful and dynamic from what I understand, from what I've read and what I've encountered. My son was the only black boy in the kindergarten class. We was a little bit nervous about that. But I um, was nervous. I was. <laughs> you were nervous. But anyway, he came home and he said, Daddy, do brown people stink? Are brown people dumb and I said where you get that from and he said um, Alex said that brown people stink and brown people dumb and he don't want to play with brown people and I said really 
I said, do you stink? He said, no. I mean, do your friends think you stink? He said, no. I said, do you think you're dumb? He said, no. I said, exactly. So you're not dumb and you don't stink. I don't know where Alex get that from, but I know Alex's daddy. I'm going to have a conversation with Alex's daddy. Needless to say, years went by and we packed up our bags and we bought a house in Atlanta and we moved to Atlanta so he could be around more people of color that looked like him. So we had to go through that. I'm so glad I didn't grow up in an environment where I had to be subject to all that type of foolishness and violence. Cause like I'll be hearing these type of stories. I'm like, gosh, how y'all not end up in fights all the time? Like, like I don't know. Bro, I grew up with a white boy across the street from me and the lightest one in my family. And that's all it took for me to feel that way. Yeah, but Still, this essay is I not mean, about colorism. No. But it is. That's where it begins in a sense because it's, no. it's, it's her... It's her. It's him recognizing difference. It's because of that. So I'm, again, it's actually her reaction to him. It's, it's more her reaction it, to him than his actual situation. Well, <laughs> the point I'm saying is the experience of the young man finding his place in space. Kids go through that. The thought that she was going to isolate him or protect him. You know, I think. I think I had my child one time. We were in an African store. And and my daughter has autism and she was kind of bugging out. And the store says, oh, you're not doing right at home. She's afraid of her culture. And I'm like, nah, dog. She got all this shit at home, bro. She just don't like this store. You got too much shit in here. You know, I think I think we try to protect our kids or try to prepare our kids. And so she thought I'm black therapist rock. I'm going to raise my child in a black, healthy environment. And she couldn't protect him from the sting of being in that white world, and that she had to deal with it, and that's you what can't brought her from racism on a planet that's dominated. And that's by the that. thing, and that's racism the thing. Is like it's as pervasive and as dangerous as fire. So like you can't not tell your kids about fire and the dangers of that. So like why do you think and expect you can't them not to get burned? Exactly. So how do you not? How do you not tell your kids about racism and? white supremacy how I operate. I mean, granted, I, I haven't I haven't had those experiences where like I was shunned by white folks, like, oh, I'm not as good. But like I think all black people have subconsciously felt like, dang, white people got all the good shit. I don't I ain't fuck I ain't fucking with these black folks because they they always poor, they always late, they ain't got the best stuff. These white folks got all the nice stuff. I'm trying to be that. I like how she handled it. She said what he needed was for me to be with him in his familiar yet overwhelming pain so that he didn't have to carry it alone. Then she went on to say the very definition of trauma is that we are alone in it with little or no emotional support to make meaning of critical life altering experiences. So basically she's saying we don't have time to go to therapy and a lot of us don't go to therapy. And we don't have that emotional support. And that, and that is colonialism teaching you, you nigga, go get back in your place and go back to work. Ain't nobody got time to nurse your feelings. We need you to work. You are made to work. Your body, you will be suburban. But see, now we, now I'm loving how the, the, the people who are getting it, they figuring it out. Oh, they've been going to therapy. The others been going to therapy. Let me figure out what I need to do to get my healing. 
Um, exactly. And Darren also did this. I love this. She affirmed that her that her that her son spoke truth to power because he said to her, "She's the power, mommy. I'd rather just be white. I wish I was white because they got all the good stuff." So she affirmed the fact. Okay, baby, I like that you speaking up for yourself and you telling mommy what you like and don't like. Now let's let's get in this. It's interesting to me uh, in this essay that she says, you know, the way this came, um, first of all, that she was surprised that it happened. And it's also interesting to me that she had not played this out or even talked with him about this before it happened. Yeah, because how can you not have this? How you not have this discussion beforehand? Like, why was this your first encounter he was in kindergarten i mean i don't know how do you warm up to it i mean i think i think when you when you raising them what is it you don't want what what do you want your children to be aware of and how do you want you went out what do you want them to be aware of and how do you make them aware of you want them to be prepared yeah some people will treat you differently because you're black sweetie it's not because you are worse or, and they are better. It's just because some people have an idea. I don't, I don't think, deal with it. but I think that's the thing. I don't think, I don't think she had not done that. I think that, I think she probably had done all those things. And that's, I think that was, that was, that was to her shock. You know, like mm, she probably had, I don't think she did. No, Cause I she mean, wouldn't have been in shock. He wouldn't have come in so distraught. Like, Oh my God, somebody says something I'm different. And like, mommy, look, at, no, no, they couldn't have had that conversation. Cause his reaction would have been like that. Right. Um, and she says, when did this happen? How did this happen? What did I miss? Um, I don't know what she missed. I just, and I think when Lennon started talking about this essay and he talked about his personal experience, and I guess we never really had this conversation. And he said, we, and I, I was not fearful. And this is, was not my first time at the rodeo. And I try to at least have conversations with my children so they are never off balance or that someone doesn't come at them with something that they didn't get from home. Now, is it possible for me to know everything that might come? Did I know that, you know, this child was going to say, oh, brown people smell and they smell like poop or whatever the child said? No, I didn't know that. But he knew beforehand that he was brown. His friend, these people are not brown. There are things that make you different. And when people say things that are different, you come home, we talk about it. Um, but of course, no one wants to be different. And I don't want to break everything down into the differences of people because we won't really ever get anywhere if all we do is talk about how much we're different. Um, because we actually are all more alike than we think we are. And in this particular instance, we all have to make sure that we understand and that the children or whoever we're trying to get to understand, the power comes from within. You can't ever feel shame about something if you're You've been taught beforehand that people will try to make you feel bad about your differences. But if you are taught that you are strong in your difference, what other people say will not be a problem for you because you believe what you get at home. 
even if it's the majority that's outside. Now, there are a lot of things. If everybody's got ice cream and it's all great and wonderful over there, you have to work a little bit harder to explain those things. But it can be done. People talk about you about being smart. People will say whatever your difference is, it will be brought to you in that way. But we just have to, I think in this particular essay, there were so many things that I was just questioning, um, especially with this being a therapist already. Moving on to the next essay, Running Out of Gas by Sonia Renee Taylor. This was a, um, an interesting essay, and my take on this essay was a little bit interesting. Um, this, this made me feel bad. To your, to your real question, bro, this made right. me feel bad. I'm going to let Teresa back do Back to it. my real question. This has nothing to do with <laughs> men. This has everything to do with the freak. Right? So in the past, we used to look at her as the freak. Right? So when I was reading this, I was like, oh, the freak has a story too. Yes, she and, does. And the freak was a little crazy because the freak yeah. was walking around with an urn with her mama ashes in it. Yes, she did. And the dude was like, look, man, you know, you coming over here. We gonna have sex, but I'm not about to hug you and talk to you. Right? She walking around looking for where is he? Where is it? She referred to her uh, mother as um Terry. 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 Yo, she wild. Do, 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 yeah. Do, do, do. Yeah, man. Why wouldn't she refer to her mother as Terry? <laughs> I mean, her mother was not you know mothering her. Bad when they call their parents by their first name. Well, she, her well, mama, mama had dog. some stuff with her, though, now. Her mama had, had some it's stuff rap, with her. Dog. It's a rap, right. dog. Her, black she was women not do that, mothering dog. to her. She was Terry. It was drug abuse and some more stuff. And, I mean, yeah, it was a lot going on with her. It was a complicated mother-daughter relationship to start. <laughs> she was just Terry. So this goes into this this thing about this book and these essays and these essay humanize people that men Harvey and I the the the, the macho men we would judge you know because again <laughs> we call them the freaks or whatever and they have a story behind them so as a man I thought they 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 was having sex and promiscuous because they like sex like we like sex but it's but since they're women, it's always something else behind it. Trying to make you feel Trying to fill a hole with, with trying to make you feel It's a spiritual. Before you say that, I'm trying to fill a hole so much so that she was going, she was considering eating her mother's ashes. Crazy. Well, grief show up crazy. My daddy died on the, the 24th of last month. Grief show up crazy. I'm sorry to hear that. I think that we put a lot of emphasis on sex around. And it still keeps coming off in this masculine undertone or overtone that is always making it seem like a man always wants sex and a man, that's a manly thing. I'm over it. There are so many disorders that men have 
with sex as well. It is not normal for a man to not be able to control his sexual behavior. Please, let's understand that. Can we please stop saying that it is normal for a man to I don't think anybody's saying that. All the time. Oh, it's always said. So, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Say it one time. It's very normal for a man to want to have sex all the time. Now, for it's not normal for a man to go out and and seek his his desires. We gotta have sexual discipline. That's not normal when you're not disciplined with the sex. Why is it not? But, why are we the desire to want to have sex is very healthy for all people. Oxytocin is is one of the only well, it's several ways you can get it, but the the most prominent way, oxytocin, is a, a good old orgasm. And that is neurochemical that's good for your mental well-being. And so an orgasm will give you that. And solitary sex or sex with someone else, someone else will give you that. So the, the let's make sure that we understand that men also have this behavior. Men also have sex to cloud their thinking like a drug. They use sex for escapism. They use sex for comfort. Agree. They use sex for many reasons. Agree. So Mark Lamont Hill talked about that in his essay. So yes. we're talking about yes. a double so, standard then, right, Doc? That's what you, because yes, when women are. do it, yeah. they got to be a hoe. But when a man does nah, it, we, it's his sexual I said a freak. We said freaks. You're saying she's crazy. Yes, she wanted to. She was else. walking around with a with a urn. No, but even urn. if you took that away, she's still trying to fill a hole that is an absence for her. Even if you took that part away, she's hurting. She's so hurting, and she's looking for comfort. The man who is having sex for comfort or because he lost his job or because he's feeling inadequate, those are still the wrong reasons to have sex. Okay, but. <laughs> if the body has a deficiency and it has a natural way of craving to meet the deficiency and then there are social structures put in place that would make governing a deficiency look like discipline and reward those for doing so and penalize those who seem to can't that would be the problem. And I think that that's monogamous relationships. Okay, Sonia Renee Taylor, running out of gas. So, in this particular she is trying, she is definitely trying to feel herself. And a lot of people do that, male and female. And because you never get a hold of what you are actually doing, it becomes a cycle of nothingness. And she begins to ride around in her car looking for a man who is giving her nothing. Who told her he was done with her. But sex. He wasn't even trying to do that no more. Right. Basically, he was just done. Sex with men is physical. And then Uh, once we're done that's when we start thinking for but for the most part we trying to release physically and we don't really care about your feelings or anything like that until we get older but when you're young we're not thinking about that we're not thinking about uh attachments or things like that but 
Harvey, don't leave me out here by myself. It is ridiculous. I think it's a hasty generalization, though. Yeah, Yeah. I got some spring girls that that they cold pieces that put y'all to shame. (laughs) I'm trying to tell you, they don't even want to hear. Be out in these streets talking about. Yeah, your Uber's on the way, sir. (laughs) These women are. These women are. They they are like black widows. They will eat you up and throw your ass. Yeah, so be careful with the generalizations. Yeah, we are tools in this space. (laughs) It's ridiculous, and it's not even you know what you know. People tend to try to make it, but yes, the generalizations around here are. Um, off the I'm chat. backing you up, Doc. I'm backing you up. I appreciate that. Thank you. Everybody knows women don't have sex as they want to. They have sex as men trick them into it. Come on now. Listen, Donovan, Whatever. it is clear in this uh, story. I, I say it all the time. Men are tools. Women are clearly running the show. This sister, she was she was in a zone somewhere that only she knows where the hell she was at. And right. her therapist was the only person that could get to what that was all about because the right. zone she was in and she was using them dudes just as man I, we can call and laugh and say what we want to say about her but the reality is she was using and abusing them dudes just the same if not worse if not more if not the cause of it that's true so, because you know, we have no idea how um i can't remember his name the first guy uh sean sean yeah so you know we so what, 16 years, I think? How long had they been doing this? Yeah. So we're not real sure what headspace Sean was in. Um, Sean could have been really passive. He may have liked her. I don't know. She Because she's telling the story from her perspective. And she probably has no idea. But I don't know. We don't know how Sean was feeling about this. I mean, Lenny, I, I've, I've, I, I would say this much, bro. Like, at one point in time, well, I'll just say it this way. I've come to understand that a lot of the women that I thought was freaks and whatever, whatever, they had other shit going on in their lives and that sex meant something totally different to them as what it did to me. Exactly. That's my point I was trying to make. As a, I can say this. As a, Sean showed us how he really felt about her when she came over to his home and she was like, my mom died and Sean was like oh yeah for real your mama died he and then he put say, his hands oh, up on yeah, her nipples for real your mama died that is not what happened <laughs> they, he did what no, it I said it. Like she just died it was just like he was like oh you, you feel bad because your mama died no he didn't I got something to get your mind he made her something to eat and poured her, pour her some wine something tasty at that which is more than what you do. When I ever walked into somewhere and you was Uh-oh, cooking got me dinner. <laughs> Your mama died? I mean, this is what I'm saying. This is, Her mother did not die yesterday. Let me give you some of this. this That's not what happened. Oh, he he gave her some red wine. They had a fabulous smell. <laughs> And not only That's that, she said she that he had been doing this for years. Mm-hmm. She comes over to his house. He feeds her physically, and then he feeds her physically. He fills her up, then he fills her up. Right, gotcha. He wanted <laughs> from him. So she had probably set the precedent for him very long ago. 
They was fucking. That's the word she used. She did say that. She did say that. He was still falling into the role they was that they had already had for uh, each fuck other. Me. We never, and we don't I'm know if he wanted him. more or not. He did, maybe at one point in time. She was trying to get him to do something he wasn't prepared to do, which is be emotionally available. But she was doing it to herself. She was, she, she, she was doing it to herself. I mean, how many men do we know that stay in a re- that type of relationship for 16 years? I mean, it wasn't clear that he was seeing anyone else. Yes, it was. He was putting it out like that. Yeah, it was. He did. I mean, they stayed. She stayed the whole night. He was not putting her out. They got up <laughs> in the morning. He walked her to the car. It's rules of this shit, yo. She had to. We go. don't know that that was his rules. So y'all are projecting. <laughs> <laughs> you're projecting with yeah, you. Yeah, his yeah, own calendar. He had his own calendar. Your flight leaves at eight. Her flight lands at nine. My can't trust me. Why? <laughs> Because this is what allows them to get played because they think that they know one thing. And while they're doing all of this, the women are counting these little checks they're picking up and going from house to house. And they don't know because they're so busy saying, oh, I'll put her out. Well, she readily is going next door. So it's really no good. She going around the block fiending for this other nigga is what she got to go yeah. do. Right until she running out of gas fiending for this other nigga. Quasi. That's so mm-hmm. weird. She like He like, man, I got this little crazy bitch coming into town this weekend. Yeah. That's exactly what she he was said. doing it to herself though. If, if if we if we flip the if we look at the power, she 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 recognizes she was giving it giving the power away as well. She says, I screwed Quasi to abandon myself like my mother had abandoned me. She was doing it. This is that thing. Now, if you don't say hear nothing else that this therapist say today, hear this. If you don't heal your parental relationships, they'll pop up in other places unresolved and in your face for you to do another lesson. And that's what that's what sis was doing. She was banging out. You know, pardon the pun, but uh, <laughs> I mean, sisters, I know how they had daddy issues. That's what it becomes. This was a mommy for issue. women. Is a little bit. It seems like it's a little bit deeper, and th- there's more emotional attachment than it is with a man. It can be, but it doesn't have to. When be. when a woman has an orgasm, well, this is when a woman has an orgasm, and she looking at you. And she looking at you, that same bonding chemical that bonds her to her baby when she's nursing her child at her at the nanny is the same thing she get with you when she say, ooh, ooh and look at you. So, yeah, there's a bonding agent for this release. That for nobody else. That don't happen with y'all. And, I, well, and I, the physiology well, of that, I get that part. That part don't happen with y'all. But that just means sis got to be more discerning. Close your doggone eyes. <laughs> don't look at me, sis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at his eyes. Or have your own. Don't let nobody do have your own all by yourself. You don't need nobody. <laughs> look at the mirror. Look at the mirror next time. You know what? It's crazy because when a man when a man has an orgasm, all of that sexual tension is out the window. All, all of that lust is gone. And now we're looking at you like, do we really like you as a person? That's when we really start like. What Teresa you. just said, they be saying the same thing. They be on the same Some of shit. them. I mean, we, we got to watch the generalizations. Nobody, you know, none of us, you know, it's not a monolith being female, male, or That's whatever's in between. That is true. That is, I agree. Everyone That's the whole different. point. That's the whole point. That's where the, the queerness of the conversation catches us all. What does it mean to be a man? 
I wanted to go back to Darren just for two seconds because there's something we didn't say that plays into what y'all are talking about. Uh, she does acknowledge and she says um, that she can't name a lonelier, less cared for, more feared group of Americans than, than the black men. She talks about uh, that, you know, y'all are looked at as dangerous. It's difficult for you to build relationships and connection and trust and emotional, you know, IQ. Uh, so she does go there when she's talking about her son and that plays into what all what you're saying right now as well. Um, uh, when I have male clients that, that approach me to want to be on my caseload, I make sure I end my sessions with it's an honor to hold space for warriors and kings. It's an honor to be a refuge for warriors and kings. How I end my session with my black males because I realize that's a vulnerable space for y'all to, to, to walk in to say, I need therapy. I need counseling. I want to change my life in this way. I want to know myself better. I want to know my feelings, feel my feelings, express my feelings, uh, know how to do all of that and relate better to the people in my life. That, you know, part of what to get out of this book, you know, if you can bend enough to know that you got to heal your, heal your broken parts. Um, all of us have to. I think this book is doing a really good job in holding up a mirror to us as black men and making us look at ourselves and ask, what is our contribution on the mistreatment of our own culture, women and children? Are we the agents carrying out our own abusers' tyranny? Good question. Absolutely. Ask ourselves these Absolutely. Good questions. questions. Or are we just even devising more stuff to break ourselves up? That part. Absolutely. I want to move on to the next essay. My journey, vulnerability, rage, and being black in the art world. Irene Antonia Diane Reese. This is pretty cool. It is. She's half Mexican and half black. The thing okay. that jumped out to me was she wasn't confused on her identity. Throughout the essay, she was identifying as a black woman. And a lot of times when you are mixed, you have like a, a white mom, a black dad, or a Mexican mom, a black dad. You kind of spend a majority of your life with an identity crisis trying to identify who you are. And it seems like she just naturally fell into, hey, I'm black and that's who I am. It kind of reminded me of Arian Foster, the running back uh, for the Houston Texans. He's retired now and he has a podcast, but he identifies as black. But um, her activism is through her art. And if you have the book, you know, you can see her artwork. I want to say something. I want to say something. And I want to say it with love, 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 love. I think she didn't say this at all, but she did speak to how people try to call her on her lack of work around her Latin mestizo culture. And I think what happens is, man, the black experience is so powerful and so captivating that there's no slight towards the other but it's just so, it just does that. So when people don't feel like the other side of them is what they express, so to speak, because what they live is the black experience. She didn't say it like that, but I, I think she kind of, she was like, you know, 
I, you know, why people want to know why I don't show this in my artwork? And it was, all, I almost kind of like heard her say like, cause th- th- they don't mean shit to me. <laughs> but that's not what she said. That's not, that's, that's not what she, she said, said at all. <laughs> What she said was we really don't talk about white supremacy and colonialism or any of that on that side of my family, on my mother's side of the family. The, Me- the Mexican part don't, don't acknowledge none of this, but I want to be black and proud and an activist. You see what I'm saying? So. That's a- I said it. <laughs> it don't mean shit to them. That that stuff don't mean nothing. That's that's the the black experience does that shit. You know, we struggle and we celebrate our struggle and you know, we romanticize the 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 plot against the white man. Other motherfuckers don't do that shit, man. They don't they don't spend their time on that shit. So yeah. This one this a this is another one where the author wasn't queer. And it wasn't any of that. She was just on here talking about her expression through art. And I thought that was cool. And she really like talks highly of her father and his ex- and his influence on her family and her life. But it was queer though, bro, because she's normalizing black people in ways that white people don't want them to be seen. Well, that's so deep. That's deep. People smiling. That's queer. That's the whole point. She she's highly she's you can't yeah I feel you. Said it again already. Yeah. I can't quite hear you. She's she's normalizing black people in ways that white people don't want them seen. So it is queer. You know she's showing black people having fun at a birthday party. Having fun at birthday. Yeah, she's doing all all that's queer. And so, but I, I I you know I understand what Lenny is 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 he's the acknowledging so to speak but her work I would say nah that's it's queer as hell and she also touched on um, how doctors mix diagnosed her and said that you know she was just being uh, true dramatic when she was having these nosebleeds actually what we're dealing with though is um, because she had a pituitary tumor at the age of 20 but Thank you. That goes into, you know, going back to Kiese's essay. And I think she began to relate a lot to her experience because she knew at that point that people were not taking her seriously because of her blackness. And that we see in society now that black women are seen as dramatic. Black women are seen as exaggerated black mothers are and, very have a very high probability of dying in child labor and having complications yes. with childbirth because they're not listened to by that their physicians so i mean and i even have an experience and you know I, it hindsight is 2020 i didn't look at it like that when the first time i gave birth but i had to take my life into my own hands because my doctor kept telling me, you know what, stay at home. You'll be fine. You're 27 weeks. You'll be fine. Lay on your left side. Drink some water. You'll be fine. But after a couple of hours, I said, you know what, I do not feel fine. And I am going to the hospital. And they told, I called. My mother said, well, let me call again. And they, she said, no, don't come to the hospital. Just, you know, wait until the morning. And I said, no. And thank God I did go to the hospital because these babies started coming out. And it was just because 
I believe now with the knowledge that I have, they think that we exaggerate. Well, and they also think we, can, we have a higher threshold of pain that comes from slavery. We don't feel pain the mm-hmm. same. We don't. We're not in contact with our. We're not smart enough to know our own bodies. Um, but with that being said, right. That's what I'm saying. So, with that being said, what actually happens? And my mother and my sister are classic examples. They will wait until they are almost dead to go to the hospital. They have the highest threshold of pain that I have ever seen. My mother, they thought they thought she had blood cancer. She waited so long. She almost had no bone marrow. And she was just taking that because she felt like, you know what, I'm getting older. I'm supposed to be in some type of pain. We have normalized the fact that we don't deserve to be feeling a hundred percent that we, we shouldn't feel like at the age of 50, we can just go run a marathon, but that's why it's an oxymoron that they think that we're exaggerating. That and that couple with, we don't trust them. We don't trust the medical community anyway. That's, you know, so couple them two things together and you got terrible health outcomes for our folks. This is true. But we are not the ones that are exaggerating. We are not the ones that are running to the hospital just because we have a prick in the finger or some type of nothing. I stubbed my toe. We're not going to. And that's even when we're insured because we don't want the copay. We don't want to look like we're weak. All of that together. I broke my toe. And went to Hawaii with a broken toe because I did not want to go to the doctor and I was not going to mess up that trip for my children. So I went all the way to Hawaii with a broken toe. But yet we are the ones that are exaggerating. So she clearly, yeah, she clearly related to that. And she, I think she wanted to make sure she says, I experience pain. My pain is real. I am human. I matter. I matter. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Believe black women. (laughs) (laughs) Unlearning shame, remembering love. YOLO. YOLO. Akili Robinson. YOLO. Akili. 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 Yolo Akili. He's a cool guy. I like this essay. I love this one. I, I really do. Because this essay ties into what Harvey has been saying throughout this whole podcast is white supremacy. And until you understand white supremacy, <laughs> then you will understand what I'm talking about. Right. That and when his daddy came home from Germany. And went down to Florida. He went to go see his son, his son living with his mom and his aunts and his sisters. He said, boy, you, what? You around all these women and you acting like a sissy? His daddy couldn't understand that because his daddy. His daddy said it's highlighted twice. So he needs to get from around all these guys. All these got dang on women. Man. He ain't say dang on, yeah. but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, I don't understand that. I grew up with a mother and a sister in the house. And I don't think anybody ever told me that I was 
acting like a woman. So I don't know how much influence being around a woman is, or could it just be that your son is queer and you don't know how to compartmentalize that and you don't you don't know where to put that in your brain. As a man, you're thinking that, hey, that can possibly cause violence towards my son. I want to protect my son. I don't want my son being out here, being gay and being discriminated against, being jumped on or whatever. Man, I'll put it this way. We've heard that. We've heard that song and dance before. And I remember one time when my homeboy was over the crib, he has a son who has autism. And he said to me, he's like, yo, doc. My son has spent all his time in the back room on a video game if I let him, just playing on this tablet or whatever, on this game system or whatnot. And he was like, that wasn't the image of fatherhood that I had for myself. You know, I envision teaching my son how to lift weights, you know, do things that I do. You know, I could I could leave him here and go do whatever, and he wouldn't give a shit. And I think on a very basic level, I think that's what it is, man. I think I think that we want to see ourselves and our children and whatever it is that we're doing and we don't see our, in our children, it can cause us to react in different ways. And his father had just came out of the goddamn bullets flying and shit. So, you know, it's everything's contextualized in a weird space. I don't like making anybody out to be the the cause of their own misfortune all the time, man. But it's it's complicated. And I think it's I think he does a great job of illustrating, you know, why it's problematic and how it's difficult. And, you know, what what do we always expect to come come next? You know, just because he was playing with dresses doesn't mean he's not gonna be gay. Is that necessarily a better story than, you know, whatever his dad might have did? It, it all gets crazy, man when we look at it like that. And when you talk about that, I think the very basic tenet is expectations. Every relationship has an expectation. So even parenting, there's an expectation for your child before your child is even born. So once your child is born and it's different than your expectation, then that's when you have to adjust. And if you cannot adjust as a parent to what the reality is, then there becomes that disconnect. And so it becomes the responsibility of the parents to adjust their expectations to the reality of their child. And none of us had that conversation before becoming parents, right? Like nobody didn't talk to you about you know, managing the expectations that you have for your child. And it is grief is what it is. When you when you have an expectation that is not met or you have to adjust or transition the way that you thought things were going to be, that's a form of grief. When the parents come to me because my baby's gay, what am I going to do? What did I do wrong? And I'm trying to counsel somebody and I'm trying to tell them, you know, you didn't necessarily do anything wrong. What does this have to do with you? That is their, you know, identity. And they're what they're identifying with. What you're grieving is you thought you were going to give your daughter away to a man at the altar. And she's telling you she ain't got nothing to do with no man. <laughs> so you feeling some type of way. Parents are usually always trying to relive their life through their children in some form. 
Well, not even, not even relive. Oh, it's curious. like, no, you know, when you have a daughter, you are thinking I'm going to have grandchildren and I'm uh-huh. going to give her away one day. And you get met with the fact real quick. That's not what's going to happen. What you thought ain't going to be. And it's not just adjusting. You have to grieve. Yeah. Like you got to stop and go, dang, if you need to cry, go on yeah, cry. Because you basically have to. Don't keep grieving. taking it out on a child and be enraged. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah that's what I mean. You know, I wish more parents of queer people you thought you were going to have. The mm-hmm. child that this the one you got is, right. So you <laughs> grieve the loss of the child that you thought you had, and for sometimes, I mean, sometimes when it's something of that nature, because several years will pass and you have no idea, so you definitely have to grieve at that point because you've been preparing for the day when you do that because all the indicators said this is where we're going and then you know they walk in and say Mm-mm. and you have to grieve that loss yeah i think that's what happens it becomes anger and rage and disgust and it turns and turns into shame for the parent and the child then you know so I mean, we've seen yeah, we've seen um, fathers go to the extreme of taking the kid out and beating the shit out of them, taking them to you know violent neighborhoods and just leaving them. Um, that was one of my experiences. Um, you know, um, we've seen Cutting them take them, gay into their hair and, and posting on social media. I've seen that. That that's the shaming. That's, that's abuse. 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 That's abuse. Um, we've seen them take them to uh, strip clubs or get them prostitutes and, you know, get them. That's, that's abuse. abuse. You know, we, we've, well, we've seen the the grief show itself like that. And it goes from grief to abuse in a matter of not thinking sometimes, right? Not thinking out what what you're really doing. <laughs> grief can turn into abuse. When keeping it real goes wrong is how grief turns into abuse, right? I guess because I guess everybody is okay to have the feeling of being that the, the child they thought they had was going to die. And now let the feeling, I guess, stay with that child. Is it, Teresa? Don't put this, this new child is, is here to be loved, not to be looked at in the replacement of the other one. This, this is what you have to love and focus on that part is the activity. And that's um, important. Yeah, It's important for the development of that child or, you know, and even in any relationship that you're in with someone so that that it doesn't turn into abuse and it doesn't turn into negative behaviors. And what we're specifically talking about is shame, because here it says shame unhealed is an intergenerational curse. And we've seen that in so many instances of intergenerational curses, uh, we look at that and we speak of that, but it's in so many ways. It comes in the form of financial um, situations. It comes into sexual situations. It comes into you know how you relate with your spouse or whatever partner that you have. It becomes the basics of how you live your life coping or not coping with emotional pain, stressors of life, drugs, alcohol, all that stuff. Um, I try to always make sure when I'm talking about the generational curses or the generational uh, pangs or things that you're passing down that could possibly be detrimental that we talk about. But if you can pass down trauma, generational trauma, then you can pass down healing. So you can decide 
that this part is going to stop with me and my family. There'll be no more and of this. on the shoulder of the man There'll the be house. no more of this. Why it's got to be on the man, Lenny? Yeah, I want to be the head of everything else. Yeah. The head that too. She's talking about the emotional pass down trauma is through the man. His dad. I, I thought this essay was interesting. I thought it was interesting how you talked about that part about how um, being queer, you have to kind of normalize... Um, I guess lying and almost like deceit to kind of just in order to live. So mm -hmm. like that whole, just not even being able to be like a whole person, being more like a like a character walking around as a character of yourself in order to have safety. I thought that was pretty. Um, I don't know. You have to lie to survive. Then it becomes to lie to live. Exactly to where you get to the point to where you like. Am I this person that I'm rejecting, or who 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 is the real me at this point? I just thought that was cool. Rock for real. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Tune in next week as we wrapped up. You are your best thing with part four, and you can support us and help us grow by sharing it with your friends. If you're on a long road trip, or you know somebody that's going on a long road trip, share one of our podcasts with them. It'll feed their mind and tickle their spirit. This is a fun, entertaining podcast. Share it, help us grow so we can keep giving you this great content. Tune in to the Bros Bookshelf and learn something and be entertained while doing so. Enjoy. Enjoy.